Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. was from a band named The Slants, and it was from their album, The Band Who Must Not Be Named. Their band name was the subject of a Supreme Court decision in 2017. It involved a federal statute that banned trademarks that disparage or bring into contempt or disrepute any person, living or dead. And in that case, The Slants had been denied a trademark for their band name. The band's made up of Asian-American musicians, and they said they decided to use what was a derogatory term for their band name, something they said they did in order to drain the term of its denigrating force. The Patent and Trademark Office, though, said it disparaged a whole group of people and denied the trademark. In their case, the Supreme Court said the law denying trademarks that disparage other people was an unconstitutional violation of the Free Speech Clause of the First Amendment. It was overbroad, and it would involve the government in discriminating against certain points of view. As Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion in the case explained, With few narrow exceptions, a fundamental principle of the First Amendment is that the government may not punish or suppress speech based on disapproval of the ideas or perspectives the speech conveys. The government was saying, in essence, we find that message offensive. And by doing that, it was engaging in viewpoint discrimination, something the Supreme Court said they were forbidden from doing by the First Amendment's free speech clause. Two years later, the Supreme Court decided a related case brought by Eric Brunetti. At issue was a federal law that prohibited the registration of immoral or scandalous trademarks. Brunetti was trying to register a trademark for his clothing brand, F-U-C-T, which Justice Kagan noted could also be read as the past participle form of a well-known word of profanity. And that common perception, Kagan commented, caused difficulties for Brunetti when he tried to register his mark with the U.S. Patent and Trade Office. Brunetti's case is a little different than the case about the derogatory band name. It isn't about disparagement of other people. The claim, rather, is if those letters are pronounced as a word rather than as individual letters, then it would be phonetically identical to a word of profanity and that would be immoral or scandalous to have as a trademark, according to the Trademark Office. In this case, the Supreme Court threw out the ban on immoral or scandalous trademarks, along with the ban on disparaging trademarks as overbroad. Determining whether something is immoral or scandalous, like determining what is disparaging, is a subjective exercise that runs the risk of viewpoint discrimination, the court said. 
But Justice Sotomayor, in a concurring opinion, invited Congress to narrow the statute by focusing specifically on obscenity, vulgarity, and profanity, rather than the broad term of scandalous or the even broader term of immoral. There's a reason Sotomayor chose those terms, obscenity, vulgarity, and profanity. To understand why, and to understand some of the contours of this whole debate about viewpoint discrimination and categories of speech that nonetheless may be suppressed by the government, we need to revisit three foundational cases. Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire, 1942. Cohen versus California in 1971. And United States versus O'Brien in 1968. Let's start with Walter Chaplinsky. He was a Jehovah's Witness distributing religious pamphlets and literature on a public street in New Hampshire. A crowd gathered around him, many quite offended by his comments about organized religion and the Catholic priesthood. Some in the crowd attacked him, and the police then came and arrested him. Chaplinsky demanded to know why the people in the crowd were not arrested along with him, and an officer then reportedly said, Shut up, you damned bastard. Chaplinsky in turn called the officer a damned fascist and a racketeer. Chaplinsky was charged with breaking a law against the use of any offensive, derisive, or annoying word to another person who is lawfully in the street. His case then goes to the Supreme Court, and in 1942, a unanimous Supreme Court upholds Chaplinsky's conviction in the case of Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire. In addition to being an interesting case study of public mores in the 1940s, the case is one of the foundational cases laying out specific classes of disfavored speech under the First Amendment and a theory about why the First Amendment protects speech in the first place. Justice Murphy for the court said that it is well understood that the right of free speech is not absolute at all times and under all circumstances, and that there were, in fact, certain well-defined and narrowly limited classes of speech, the prevention and punishment of which have never been thought to raise any constitutional problem. These include the lewd and the obscene, the profane, the libelous, and the insulting or fighting words those which by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. The reason these things are not protected by the First Amendment, Murphy said, is because such utterances are no essential part of any exposition of ideas and are of such slight social value as a step to truth that any benefit that may be derived from them is clearly outweighed by the social interest in order and morality. Catch that. The purpose of the First Amendment is to protect the free exposition of ideas, and the purpose of the free exposition of ideas is the pursuit of truth. But there are some things, the lewd, obscene, profane, libelous, or insulting, that just aren't essential to the exposition of ideas. And the interest that we have in maintaining order and morality clearly outweighs any benefit derived from protecting that kind of speech, at least according to Murphy's opinion in this case. Keep that in mind as we look at two more cases, each involving protests of the military draft during Vietnam. The first is a 1971 case called Cohen versus California. Paul Cohen had walked into the corridor of a Los Angeles County courthouse wearing a jacket that said, in big letters on the back, F the draft, but the F was fully spelled out here. He was charged under a California law that prohibited maliciously and willfully disturbing the peace or quiet of any neighborhood or person by offensive conduct. The court here sides with Cohen. In his majority opinion, Justice Harlan noted, rightly, that the offensive conduct at issue is Cohen's speech. There was no conduct outside of speech itself, the letters on his jacket. And then Harlan said this, At least so long as there is no showing of an intent to incite disobedience to or disruption of the draft, 
You remember that line of cases starting with Schenck versus United States in 1919 that we discussed. Cohen could not, consistently with the First and Fourteenth Amendments, be punished for asserting the evident position on the inutility or immorality of the draft his jacket reflected. But then Harlan noted that this does not end the inquiry, of course, for the First and Fourteenth Amendments have never been thought to give absolute protection to every individual to speak whenever or wherever he pleases, or to use any form of address in any circumstances that he chooses. And then he goes on to both recount the categories of disfavored speech from Chaplinsky and narrow their application in significant ways. This isn't a case of lewdness or obscenity, he says. Obscenity must be in some significant way erotic, and this just wasn't the case. It wasn't a case of fighting words. These weren't personally abusive epithets likely to provoke a public disturbance. The real question, he said, was whether the states, acting as guardians of public morality, may properly remove this offensive word from the public vocabulary. And yet Harlan asks, how is one to distinguish this from any other offensive word? Certainly the state has no right to cleanse public debate to the point where it is grammatically palatable to the most squeamish among us. Yet no readily ascertainable general principle exists for stopping short of that result were we to affirm the judgment below. For while the particular four-letter word being litigated here is perhaps more distasteful than most others of its genre, it is nevertheless often true that one man's vulgarity is another's lyric. Indeed, it is largely because government officials cannot make principal distinctions in this area that the Constitution leaves matters of taste and style so largely to the individual. Note the subtle but important difference in approach between this case and Chaplinsky. In Chaplinsky, Justice Murphy said that the point of free speech was to protect the exposition of ideas, and the point of the exposition of ideas was the pursuit of truth. Some things just didn't contribute to that pursuit. Profanity, obscenity, libel, personal epithets, for example— so they weren't part of the freedom of speech protected by the First Amendment. In Cohen, Justice Harlan says that the question of which words give offense is largely a matter of taste and style. One man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. But I don't think Harlan actually meant that. He didn't, after all, repeat the word that was on Cohen's jacket. Instead, he referred to it as a particular four-letter word. We all kind of know there are certain words that in our culture give offense— If I ask you to come up with a list of words that you think would give offense if written on the back of a jacket in a courtroom or perhaps in a classroom, I'm sure you could come up with a few. We aren't complete relativists about these things. But Harlan perhaps gives a better reason for the court's decision later in his opinion when he says that we cannot indulge the facile assumption that one can forbid particular words without also running a substantial risk of suppressing ideas in the process. In George Orwell's 1984, one way the government exercised totalitarian control was by reducing the number of words that were available to communicate ideas. Without certain words, one couldn't communicate certain things. This truncated vocabulary was called newspeak. At the end of the day, I think Harlan was worried about something like that, about the dangers of allowing the government to censor speech, that doing so would run the risk of suppressing ideas. Now, does that mean that you should be able to go into a courthouse with F the draft on your jacket? Couldn't you communicate your disdain for the military draft in different language? Do you need that word to communicate those ideas? Cohen could have presumably offered a withering critique of the U.S. policy in Vietnam without ever uttering the F word. But sometimes people use profanity to emphasize certain things. Those bad words can serve as tools of persuasion, not as appeals to logic or reason, but as appeals to emotion pathos instead of logos, for those of you who have studied rhetoric. 
And in fact, persuasion might come through actions or demonstrations rather than logical argumentation. That's how David O'Brien intended to protest the draft just a few years before Cohen. He went up to the South Boston courthouse and burned his draft card on the courthouse steps. And for that, he was arrested by the FBI and convicted of violating a federal statute which forbade forging, altering, knowingly destroying, mutilating, or in any manner changing one's selective service certificate, what we call draft card. The Supreme Court upheld O'Brien's conviction. And here's what's important about that case and how it squares with Cohen versus California. In O'Brien, the Supreme Court acknowledged that actions can communicate, that this was an example of symbolic speech, and that he intended to express an idea when he burned his draft card. Then the court laid out a test, as the court often does. They said when the government has an important or substantial interest that is unrelated to the suppression of ideas, in this case protecting the integrity of the military draft, and when the incidental restriction on speech is essential to further that interest, in this case the prohibition on destroying your draft card was essential to that policy, then the policy can stand. The important distinction here is between the government's interest and the suppression of speech. As the court starts approaching these things in the 1960s and 1970s, the government couldn't make it a crime simply to express opposition to the draft. O'Brien has a right to express that idea. But he doesn't have a right to express that idea in any manner he wants. He can't express that idea by violating a government policy against the destruction of property, in this case his draft card, that's essential to a government program. These principles are hard. There are always cases that challenge how we think about them. And so on Thursday this week, we'll talk about a few specific examples that might challenge how we think about free speech and about those categories of disfavored speech that we get from Chaplinsky. Sorry if I know it's too sharp. Sorry if I voice too raw. Don't make the pen a weapon and censor our intelligence until it costs me nothing at all. Sorry if you take offense. Made of rules and play pretend. We know you fear change. It's something so strange, but nothing's gonna get in our way.